Welcome to the Spokane County EMS Podcast. Your source for educational content for EMS providers in Spokane County. The views expressed in this podcast represents the sole opinions of the host and guests and should not replace guidelines as outlined in the Spokane County EMS Protocol or guidelines as outlined by the Washington State Department of Health or your local protocols. As always, proceed with caution. Welcome back to the Spokane County EMS Podcast. This is Dr. Edminster flying solo this week. Uh, we've been somewhat delinquent in getting episodes out to y'all, and that's uh, our fault. We apologize for the delay. A lot of stuff going on, primarily um, some great vacations that were well needed, but most importantly, uh, Dr. Dang welcomed a new son to his home, so congratulations to Micah and his family on the arrival of their baby boy. I'm sure he can give more details on that uh, when he joins us for the subsequent episode. But in in lieu of this kind of heat wave crisis that we have right now, I thought it might be relevant to get a message out to everybody um, in regard to heat stroke and heat exhaustion and generally just heat-related illnesses. And I did give a medic lecture um, May of this year on this very topic, but I forgot to hit the record button. So this is my effort to get the message out to the masses at a time that truthfully is more relevant now than it was back in mid-May. And just an opportunity to refresh an important topic considering what we're going through environmentally uh, right now. So just going to briefly cover pathophysiology of heat-related illnesses. We're going to talk about high-risk populations. We're going to talk about kind of the clinical picture and management of these patients. So remember that normal body temp is maintained by balancing heat load and heat dissipation. So heat load can be the environment plus all of our typical day-to-day metabolic processes which generate heat right and then heat dissipation is going to be how do we eliminate the excess burden that's there and this is going to be predominantly in humans by evaporative losses and all this is regulated very very closely in that core of our brain the hypothalamic uh, region that you remember think of your brain like it's an onion right so the more primitive um, uh, non-cognitive functions that we need to survive are at the very center of that onion. And as we expand out in layers, we get more complex uh, and, and more um, uh, cognitive-driven uh, activities and behaviors. But this is one of those core functions like breathing and heart rate and sympathetic nervous system and all those core, core functions that we don't think about day-to-day that just happen and keep us alive and and the the hypothalamus uh, is really one of those regions that's critical in managing those primitive functions so that's where most of this takes place there's four ways that we can uh, dissipate heat and we talked earlier about evaporative heat losses uh, and, and that's predominantly in humans conducted by evaporation of sweat so as long as we stay hydrated uh, evaporation is very efficient way to dissipate heat. Uh, We can lose heat by conduction, which is a direct transfer uh, of heat from one 
uh, mass to another. So uh, if I place an ice pack up against me, that's going to be a conductive heat loss. I'm going to directly transfer heat to, to that ice pack. Um, radiation is loss of heat just to the ambient environment. Uh, and then I can accelerate that by adding convection, which is air that, uh, that, that assists in moving that radiated heat away from the body. So radiation and convection can work together with use of a fan. That's why you see that frequently uh, or why wind feels so good on a hot day. Uh, so four, four ways that we can eliminate heat, evaporation, conduction, radiation, and convection. And we'll take advantage of all of those when we talk about managing patients. Um, you run into a certain bit of a barrier in how much you can dissipate heat uh, based on the relationship of uh, humidity with uh, temperature. So at a certain point, and specifically when relative humidity gets over 75%, um, then your ability to lose heat by evaporation becomes impaired. And then you have to take advantage of the other the other uh, heat dissipation strategies of radiation conduction and convection. So fortunately in, in Eastern Washington, we don't have a humidity index of 75%, um, but in some other areas of the state, um, particularly the coastal areas, sometimes it can be like that. And I suppose rarely we could have humid days, but we're nothing like the Midwest and the South in that regard. So uh, we can use that to our advantage. So essentially what we're up against is this condition of hyperthermia. And I think we're all familiar with hyperthermia in regard to infectious diseases, sepsis, and fever-related um, uh, to, to that process. But we can have a fever related to um, this, this same uh, environmentally-driven pathologic process. So anytime you add heat in excess of what we're designed for you end up with denatured proteins just like frying an egg uh, you can end up with proteins that uh, and enzymes that are are not going to function the way they do and you can actually generate a, a SERS response much like in sepsis related to the excessive release of uh, cytokines and and you end up with uh, vascular endothelial dysfunction um, and uh, liver failure and particularly the uh, central nervous system is very sensitive to heat stress and will be one of the critical manifestations of distinguishing just heat-related illness and simple hyperthermia from heat stroke. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. Um, ultimately, the cause of death is a lot like folks with sepsis and you end up with multi-organ system failure. Uh, and mortality rates uh, can be very high, particularly in our vulnerable populations which we'll talk about, but predominantly is going to be our, um, our behavioral health patients, substance use disorder patients, and our geriatric patients. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. So clinical findings, typically a temperature is going to be greater than 40 degrees uh, with an extreme environmental heat. Um, you'll see the typical signs that you would see with an accelerated metabolic state, which is going to be tachypnea, tachycardia. Um, you will typically, in severe cases, have some hemodynamic instability with hypotension. 
Um, you will have flushed skin, which does not always have to be uh, diaphoretic or moist. If somebody's dehydrated and they've evaporated their sweat, they can be dry, and that's a red flag. The other extreme of that would be the hypothermic patient that stops shivering. Doesn't mean that they're not hypothermic anymore, right? Um, so the the heat exertion patient who was sweaty but now is no longer sweaty, that's a big red flag. Um, urine output is going to be a great clinical uh, and historical finding that we can uh, that you can uh, investigate to determine uh, total body uh, water status. Right, people that stop or decrease urine output usually do so in an effort to conserve water. So diminished urine output uh, can be a real um, a real good clinical uh, pearl that you can pick up when taking care of these folks. And then ultimately, as things deteriorate, you'll see people with um, nausea, vomiting, they can end up with pulmonary edema. Uh, and then the, the late stage is uh, central nervous system impairment, which can be anything from confusion, altered mental status, and uh, ataxia to seizures and comatose state. Uh, just touching briefly on our high-risk populations, geriatrics, uh, the older folks uh, tend to be at higher risk. Our psychiatric population, which tends to intermingle with the substance use disorder population, they can be a uh, high-risk group. Um, morbidly obese patients can be high-risk. And then one area that I think is missed is our patients who are on diuretic medications and our patients who are on anticholinergic medications. And a lot of uh, the um, heart failure patients, uh, a lot of folks with peripheral edema, they'll be on diuretics. Remember which diuretics we need to be asking about. Typically, that's going to be things like furosemide, hydrochlorothiazide. Don't forget about spironolactone, which you'll sometimes hear about in patients with liver disease. They'll be on spironolactone as a potassium-sparing diuretic. Uh, those are probably the three major ones to think about when obtaining a, a, a pertinent history on these folks. And then anticholinergic medications. And generally, our, the anticholinergic we're all familiar with is Benadryl. Uh, but remember that there's a lot of other medications that can have anticholinergic type uh, effects. So some of the anti-psychotic uh, medications uh, have anticholinergic properties. Uh, some of the antidepressants have anticholinergic properties. A lot of the anti-emetics or anti-nausea medications have anticholinergic properties. So those are things to be really uh, be aware of. So you take this um, older population with chronic uh, comorbid conditions, the psychiatric population um, that tend to have some chemical dependency issues, um, and then you throw on top of the fact that we give them high-risk medications. It's really a setup for failure when it comes to heat-related illness, so be aware of those folks. Uh, so heat exertion um, or, or exhaustion is essentially this temperature of 104 um, or greater than 40 Celsius uh, related to an environmental cause with intact central nervous system function and then the transition to heat stroke is that temperature criteria but now I've got central nervous system dysfunction so there's heat exhaustion and heat stroke the heat stroke is when we involve CNS uh, in in critical 
probably the most critical element in managing these folks is to initiate cooling measures uh, immediately. And, and really, this should not be delayed um, to the hospital. This needs to be initiated uh, immediately in the field. And this is most human behavior will, will initiate this by seeking out shaded or cooler environments. But if they can't do that, make sure that we are assessing these folks, moving them into an environment where uh, we, can, we can initiate that cooling process. So get them in the shade, get them into a cooled area. Um, if you can, if you can um, uh, get some sort of moisture on the skin for these folks and initiate evaporative losses, uh, that can be very helpful. Um, a wet rag on the exposed skin. Um, if they have, um, if you do have water, then and then moistening some of their exposed clothing can be beneficial. Um, if they're in excessive layers, obviously you want to take some of those layers off. One of the first things I do with folks that have uh, heat-related um, illnesses is I strip them down as much as I can, uh, moisten them down with a towel, a cold towel, and then put a fan over them if I can and just take advantage of many of those opportunities to dissipate heat as possible. Full vital signs are going to be critical on these folks. Um, for folks that can tolerate oral hydration that haven't had a CNS impairment that compromises their ability to swallow, um, then we're going to we're going to encourage oral rehydration with. Um, if you can get an electrolyte supplement in there, that would be great. But it needs to be diluted. Typically, two to one dilution is appropriate. Um, as soon as you can get an IO or, I, or an IV established, do so. Um, and then I think the the general instruction, which is always um, relevant, is to give boluses in 500 cc aliquot. So give a, a rapid 500 cc bolus, reassess, give an additional 500 cc bolus. Um, cold compresses to um, target zones to maximize that. Uh, conductive loss of so the axilla, the groin, anywhere I'm close to a large vessel. Um, the probably the most effective and actually, well, not probably, but the most effective way to dissipate heat and people that are critically ill is by uh, ice water immersion. It's not always relevant in the pre-hospital setting. There are strategies that can that make it um, a reasonable. Um, uh, option uh, in the in the pre-hospital setting and, and we can talk about some of those tarp assisted cooling uh, measures uh, and, and what have you the I think one of the things that's that's probably critical is the fact that is that this this cooling process uh, be initiated immediately we know that the pre-hospital impact improves outcomes um, if you can if you can manage to employ these measures early on and stop and start that critical element of dropping and reducing temperature uh, before transport that would be preferred um, if it's a matter of um, misting uh, cold water and fans like we had talked about one one thing that I think is uh, important to put out there uh, in regard to uh, treatment of these folks in the field is that there is some difference in managing uh, heat-related illnesses versus um, 
fever as a cause for an elevated temperature when it's infectious diseases oriented like in sepsis. Um, so generally when I speak of fever reducing agents for um, people who are sick from um, sepsis or other infectious disease, we, we like the use of NSAIDs and acetaminophen. Um, but remember that in environmental heat related illnesses, uh, NSAIDs and acetaminophen have really no benefit. Um, they're not going to provi provide you with the antipyretic uh, benefit um, that, that you would hope um, or that you would get from somebody with, say, pneumonia or urinary tract infection and a fever related to sepsis. So those really should be uh, off the table. Um, additionally, um, any of the meds that have uh, anticholinergic effects should be avoided. So atropine and, and Benadryl or diphenhydramine. I can't really see how those would be indicated in most of these folks, but just be aware of the fact that we could potentially exacerbate or complicate with some of these meds. Um, when people move into the realm of um, altered mental status and uh, heat stroke, um, they can sometimes present as agitated folks, uh, and if they progress, um, can absolutely present with uh, seizure activity. And in these folks, benzodiazepines are a great agent. Um, and, uh, and I would encourage the use of uh, Versed uh, in these folks. I would stay away from some of the other agents like ketamine for agitated patients and predominantly um, use your benzodiazepines. So uh, in addition to our typical heat dissipation strategies of um, increasing evaporative losses, um, cold uh, compresses, uh, IV fluids. When we get into pharmacotherapy, you really want to kind of limit yourself to um, probably just the benzodiazepines for agitation, then obviously if things progress to seizure. Um, I think it's really um, critical that we um, have uh, rapid recognition. Um, in anticipation, obviously everybody anticipates these type of injuries right now and just being aware of what's going on in the environment um, is, is an important part of rapid recognition. I think uh, preparedness makes a huge impact on this. And, and I think in Spokane, we have some major events where this same lesson can be applied. Uh, Bloomsday um, and uh, Hoopfest are some of the other large-scale events that take place in, in the warmer months where we can employ these uh, measures and be prepared for them so that, so that we achieve that rapid recognition uh, in these folks. Uh, rapid assessment and accurate temperature, um, and good vital signs. And I know everybody hates taking temperatures, and really the only way to do this effectively is with a rectal thermometer, which nobody wants to do and I don't think is really reasonable in the pre-hospital setting. Um, but, um, but rapid assessment, getting a temperature as best you can, knowing how to use that, uh, exergen temporal thermometer that most, uh, agencies have, uh, knowing how to use it accurately and well, uh, and then a full set of vital signs, rapid cooling, uh, remember the motto, cool first, transport second, right? Um, and, and that the, 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 uh, target is to decrease their temperature below the threshold uh, in less than 30 minutes from the time of their collapse is really the standard. 
Um, so rapid cooling um, and, and however you can do it. Now there's this technique called tarp assisted cooling where you can lay out a tarp uh, and, and essentially dump water and ice into that tarp and create a cold water immersion setup. And I think that's a feasible solution um, for uh, the pre-hospital setting as opposed to where you've seen um, big troughs that they use at sporting events that we obviously don't have access to that immediately, but uh, tarp-assisted cooling may be an appropriate and reasonable measure on somebody who has, needs to be uh, achieve that goal of uh, cooling within 30 minutes and cooling prior to transport. But don't forget that just simply moistening people down and getting air over their exposed skin is a really good way. Uh, these cold compresses is a really good way to achieve what you want. Um, IV access, crystalloid infusion, anticipate that these folks are going to develop rhabdomyolysis. They're going to need lots of volume to flush their kidneys, 500 cc boluses, um, and, um, and anticipate that they can deteriorate. So um, just be aware of what's out there. Um, keep yourselves safe uh, and well hydrated. I don't, I don't think I can overemphasize the, the um, uh, importance of making sure that you guys and gals who are out in the in the heat and working in this environment that is creating patience for us we need to make sure that we don't end up being patients so those those of you involved in uh, fire responses make sure that our rehab setups are appropriate so that we can take care of our colleagues and our peers as well as patients uh, make sure everybody is adequately hydrated um, and and Let's mitigate any um, unnecessary um, losses of our own folks to this this uh, heat wave and make sure that we're addressing patients appropriately. So, uh, as always, be safe, and um, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Spokane County EMS Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you can get new episodes when they become available. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, email us at scemspodcast at spokanefire.org. This podcast has been a production of Spokane Fire Media Services.